The time is now On everything Took my heart away from money I ain't interested in fame And I pray that never change Ambition is priceless It's something that's in your veins And I put that on my name Uh Only hope I had was selling dope Was on my grind cause times was harder than to sell a float My mama told me never steal and never telling folks I grew up looking up the niggas that was selling coke Oh, I was raised by the stop sign No religion, I was getting saved by the Glock 9 By the minute, I was getting paid like the hotline Serving rolling, fiends was calling We was dot com, well connected Well respected and well protected And get accepted, was rejected Now they regret it, and get my message Wasn't signal when I was texting The niggas I was calling was fraud And I learned my lesson, now I move with aggression Use my mind as a weapon Cause chances are never given, they took them like Interceptions so throw that pass, I'll be the cornerback. Me and Falar and MMG gon' bring that warner back. Easy to dream a dream, though it's harder to live. They gon' love me for my ambition. Easy to dream a dream, though it's harder to live. They gon' love me for my ambition. Dream a dream, but what's harder to live? They're going to love me for my ambition, ambition, ambition. As news of the Ukrainian-Russian crisis infiltrates our daily news cycles, with talks, of course, surrounding NATO and whether or not this is the first shot heard around the world, equivalent of the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, thus propelling us into World War III, a lot of people, and by people I'm talking about Americans, are wondering how it all started. And of course, my answer to this is white supremacy. Now, I know you're listening and like, huh? What? Well, let me explain. You see, it's of my opinion that the more complexity of America's racial past directly colors how it relates to our current geopolitical status. But before we get into that, can I tell you about one of my favorite science books? It's based on a string theory, whose origination of thought was created by this former Jewish German scientist, I don't know, you may have heard of him, named Albert Einstein. He first originated his thought in the 1920s, famously calling it the theory of everything. They made a movie about it. Mildly put, he wanted to find the unification theory. Now, he never really nailed this theory down and famously on his deathbed, jotting down notes until his final breath in order to get his ideas out, never finding the right mathematical equation. But he did spark what is now known as string theory. And the book I'm referencing is called The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. Simply put, It states that all things are interrelated and nothing operates within a vacuum of its own existence. History is just like that, too. You see, before we even address the current geopolitical issue, we have to start with how we got here. Well, weirdly enough, it all started with the labor strike here in America, the Pullman strikes of 1849. It was actually the turning point for U.S. labor law because it pitted the American Railway Union, ARU, against the Pullman Company, the main railroad barons of the time, and the federal government, of, of, you know, that was under President 
Grover Cleveland. The strike and boycott shut down most of the nation's freight and passenger traffic, and this labor strike inspired the working class and the disenfranchised alike, showing that a group of people can change societal norms. So how does this all relate to Ukraine? Well, we'll get there. At 1 p.m. on Saturday, July 28, 1917, a group of 10,000 African-American men, women, and children began marching through the streets of Midtown Manhattan in what became one of the first civil rights protests in American history. This march set off this sounding alarms across the country with newspapers using sensational headlines like the rise of the, ne- rise of the Negro. Couple this with the increasing rise of label strikes and the sensationalized press, many leaders were terrified that this social unrest will destroy the quote-unquote American way of life. Does that sound familiar? At any rate, this terrified U.S. leaders and white supremacists alike. Can you imagine if a subclass of citizens raised up against its leaders under the title of social distress? Well, the U.S. and the world got their first taste, and it completely shocked the consciousness. On the other side of the world, in November 1917, literally three months later, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, toppled the Romanov dynasty, dismantling the royal oligarchy and kicking off the, ra- the rise of the Communist Party and inspiring international fear of the Bolshevists and anarchists. This all started the official, quote-unquote, Red Scare that gripped the United States for the better part of the next 71 years. In response, the U.S. instituted the Sedition Act of 1918, targeting people who criticized the government, social anarchists, and allowed the re- monitoring of radicals and labor union, le- labor union leaders and offered the threat of, threat of deportation and or prison. Soon, anyone who was deemed anti-institution, radical, or anarchist would be deemed a communist, a label most attributed to all civil rights leaders, including MLK, who was authorized by Edgar Hoover to be wiretapped via the Sedition Act. Oh, did I forget to mention that a big geopolitical issue was that was happening during this time? World War I, which of course took place between 1914 and 1918. Now, This war is often credited with inspiring the civil rights movement because it brought back radicalized black GIs who saw their worth and instituted their cry for civil rights, hence the creation of the first civil rights movement and the aforementioned march that I mentioned earlier, but I digress. Of course, World War I sparked the Treaty of Versailles and launched, in the words of British economist John Maynard Keynes, one of the serious acts of political unwisdom that for our statesmen have ever been responsible for talking about Great Britain. They say it contributed to German economic political instability that allowed for the formation of the Nazis just a year later. But this still doesn't explain Ukraine. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, Nazism swept across Germany and so all of Europe and detaining Jews and torturing them and declaring them the Germans the master race. None of this really bothered Americans because while some of this felt like it was strictly a European issue, again, sounds eerily familiar, Others felt it was a moral, no moral capacity to care about the Jewish people who were being killed and tortured. In fact, it wasn't even until 1941 that both Russia and Germany got, got involved in, excuse me, that both Russia and the United States got involved in World War II, with Germany attacking its east neighbors, the big bear of Russia, and of course Japan, with Pearl Harbor. Thus began the alliances of Russia and America, the unholy alliance, of course, Great Britain, of course. America not trusting Russians and Russians not trusting Americans, but still understanding the importance of this alliance great partnership. It's unquestionable that Russia suffered the biggest loss of life with over 27 million countrymen dying against Germany. However, it was America that received the greatest praise and accolades being heralded as the true heroes of the war. Now, Russia hated this and found it deeply insulting. Stalin 
kept mentioning that. Well, post-World War II, the Russians and Americans grew in their distrust from one another. Soon after, the countries that were decimated by war declared that no nation should be attacked alone in isolation. Thus, Truman created NATO in 1949 and helped bring in partners Britain and France, Belgium, Portugal, and several other nations. It has now it's been increased to 32 other nations, all with the eyes towards the east. And by east, I mean the USSR which themselves took advantage of the broken Eastern European bloc due to World War II and took over territories, thus spawning the Cold War era, with American fighting the spread of communism and USSR uh, pushing communism across the globe, supporting even political dictatorships around the world in the name of communism. Of course, the USSR broke up in 1990 officially, and the Russia was left scrambling and broken. And by broken, I mean territories that were formerly Russian now held democratic elections, thus entering in Ukraine. <sighs> I knew we would finally get there. But what does this have to do with America's failed racial moral complexity? Well, the initial idea behind NATO was the defeat of communism. Primarily, they did not want socialistic ideals penetrating the American identity and social status, whether economically or socially. Communism, and in terms of leaders or communist dictatorships, are bad. Well, that was until the last 14 years, where we've been inundated with constant PR on how a despot leader of Russia is somehow this macho man who is so clearly smarter than everyone, including our very own leaders. How does this frame of thinking change? I mean, it was just like one day Russia was the bad guys, and now Russia, or this leader, was the good guys. I wonder if it had anything to do with that black guy we elected in 2008. Yeah. Couple this with America's existing 21-year imperialistic war campaign in the middle of the East and abandoning our Afghan allies in the process, it makes sense why the interest and appetite for this latest geopolitical conflict has left a number of Americans feeling, eh, about this one. Putin, on the other hand, embodies everything about the white far-right ideal. A person who restricts free speech, strong, strong arms opposing thoughts, destroys intellectual discourse, and takes what he wants and, of course, eliminates opposition by any means necessary. Even now, you have Americans asking the question, why should we get in the way of Russian sovereignty? Because it's clear that for some, they like Putin's strongman presence. Or in the words of the great American poet, Wale Fulon, they really love him for his ambition, ambition, ambition. Ah. Thank you for joining me on Uncultured Bias. My name is Kamara Williams. I know that was a long opening, but we say on our show that culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is just another way to stay discovered. We are uncultured, we are biased, and we are black. Um, if you're tuning for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're not tuning the first time, but you're a returning listener, thank you, thank you. I uh, just want to say continue to push the show, send it to your friends, family, you know, colleagues, or whatever. Um, we really do appreciate it. I want to give a shout out to our sponsors of My Compass Tax. You can reach them at 850-273-7193 or um, mycompasstax.com. Uh, of course, I'm going to give a, another shout-out to our other sponsor, Keystone Global Real Estate. Uh, reach them at 407-680-8510 or keystoneglobalrealestate.com. And, of course, if you're in the market for wills, estate planning, trusts, probates, and guardianships, contact Smith & Williams Trial Group. You can reach us at SWTG Law or 888-SWTG-LAW. Of course, um, three two one eight seven two seven five seven three. All right, brilliant. Let's introduce our guest. Uh, starting with uh, coming in remotely, my boy Gabe. 
What's up, Gabe? You still with us? I'm still with you. Man, how you doing, bro? I'm doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing well, bro. Gabriel Magaha, man. I've known this dude since 2006. And um, I always say that me and Gabe always have these great, great conversations just surrounding race and society. And so I just thought I wanted to bring him in because it's our conversations always go up, bro. So welcome, welcome. Thank you for um, uh, joining us all the way from Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee. That's right. Thank yeah. you for giving me. I consider it a high honor. <laughs> high honor. We'll see. <laughs> And of course, uh, bringing in my former law, law professor, but current colleague, James Smith, a local practitioner here in Central Florida. Um, he is not only does he practice in criminal law and some civil defense, but he's a former JAG officer. And so and he's a political, you know, uh, I guess history buff. And so I thought it'd be great to kind of bring him in, in this conversation. Um, so welcome. Thank you for coming in. And don't give any embarrassing stories about me being in your class. <laughs> Absolutely not. Thank you. It's a, quite an honor. Let me just say this. Wow. It's uh, what, 16 years? Yeah. 17 years. 17 years. 17 years since I first met you. Um, you haven't aged a bit. <laughs> I can remember that very first day in law school class. I think I called on you. Did you? And I did. I oh. sure did. And I remember you standing up and oh, you were just as articulate then as you are now. Okay. And let me say that... Um, and I mean this in all seriousness. I couldn't be prouder for all the things that you've accomplished, not just professionally, but also personally. Um, you're an amazing man, you know, amazing husband, amazing father, great member of the community. And I just want you to know that your podcast is incredible. It really is. Uh, I rave about it all the time. I've told everyone to listen to it. I love the format. I love your opening monologues. And I also love the way that you conducted the discussions. So... You know, I left the Army to come and teach at the law school because of the mission. Mm. And the mission of the school was to provide opportunities for students who would go out and do great things. And you are a living example of that. So every day that I see you doing great things out there, it makes me very happy and proud about the time that I had there. So I'm extremely proud of you and extremely grateful for the opportunity to be here today. I appreciate that. And your uh, cash app is what now again? <laughs> 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 I think uh, the, the payment will be coming incoming in a few moments. Right, right. <laughs> I, I think the name of my cash up is straight to my uh, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, man. So appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, starting this, well, you know, uh, James, like, what did you think of that opening? And then we'll get your thoughts as well, Gabe. You know, the the opening was incredible, and I think it raises an issue that I've been thinking about a lot for the past few weeks, mm -hmm. and that is how much of our dysfunction in America today is a result of people who simply have a lack of historical knowledge. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think we failed to take into consideration when we try to analyze why Russia, Putin, behave the way they do is because we don't know enough about history to know how the Russians view us. Right. And this relates to a topic that I know we're going to get into a little bit later on. And that is for my entire lifetime, the Soviet Union and now Russia was always viewed as the bad guy, the evil totalitarian regime. Right. But what we don't realize is that the way in which this country treated black Americans. Right. Gave most of the Russian people a reason to view us as the bad guy. Right. 
And so, you know, back during the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, when you'd have this anti-communist rhetoric in the United States talking about freedom and civil rights and justice, you know, the average Russian would say, hang on, you know, clean up your own house. Right. You're going to talk to us about the way that we treat our citizens. Look at the way that you're treating black Americans. Right. And that persists to this day. Mm. Now, Vladimir Putin grew up at a time where he would have discussions with other Russians around the dinner table and say, can you believe the United States trying to take the moral high ground right. when this is a nation that still to this day treats its African-American citizens as second-class citizens? And actually, he gaslit by, that by actually saying that recently, as, as early, last year. Right. He said, how dare you wag your finger at us and you have a race issue in your own country? Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah. you know, a, a lot of this discussion, and I think we'll get into it later on, is the American people just lack a serious understanding of the history of the relationship between the two countries and how our actions are viewed by other countries and how that influences their actions. Yeah. Yeah. Not most deaf. Gabe, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree. I think that's a very interesting uh, perspective and not one that I had really spent a lot of time thinking about, but certainly one that I will spend more time thinking about after having heard it. Um, I do feel like there is hypocrisy. I think hypocrisy to some degree is inevitable. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you know, um, I think that that is something that America should certainly uh, think about uh, collectively. Um, I think that um, a lot of people are sort of fed a narrative and they, especially nowadays, because it's so easy to get into our silos, to go to, um, you know, uh, stations, television stations, radio stations, and res- respectively, uh, respectfully, uh, Kamar, uh, podcasts. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> but, but, but the non-objective ones I'm speaking of, right. uh, not yours. But, but, but uh, you know, go into those silos and, and sort of get into an echo chamber. Yeah. We only think about the narrative that is uh, being fed to us on a regular basis, and it makes us intellectually lazy. I think we're going to talk about some of the things that um, some evidence of that a little later on in the show. But in any case, uh, you know, and and not think about the nuance of uh, our our our, our policy as, as a country. Um, and then how we go about things generally. So I, I think that that is, I totally agree uh, with the professor and, and with you. And I think it's something that, that uh, certainly we should spend more time thinking about. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, so, you know, parlaying that into the, this discussion, the anti-communist rhetoric that, you know, we have seen and it's ties to the black civil rights movement. Um, I often think that it was very fascinating because back then, especially and I mentioned in the opening, if you actually said anything in opposition to the federal government's treatment of black citizens, they automatically put you on the list. And that was for Jewish Americans and for black Americans. And they deemed you a socialist and an anarchist, especially during the Red Scare time of of the McCarthy era. Um, You know, that was a very scary time. People lost jobs. And and, and it took a, a lot of fortitude for people to speak out back then to say, hey, this is not right. Um, the the uh, persecution of 
citizens that you've said are Americans and treating them not as such um, doesn't make any sense. And um, I've always found been fascinated how, you know, the term socialism and communist and anarchist and radical is thrown out in this country all for asking for the basic needs. And that, even to this day, like you ask for even asking for the basic needs of like medical medical or just education. Oh, you're a socialist. You're an anarchist. And it's like these terms are layered in 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 the divisiveness and meaning that all stems from the idea of, you know, a white supremacy or ideal of like not um, promoting um, equal equality within society. So like, Gabe, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to the point that I made uh, just a minute ago, that we've become intellectually lazy. Yeah, um, We are a 45 character society, yeah. a headline society that likes to th- put things in a box. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of hip hop and, and Nas in particular. And he used to have a, he had a line in a, in a song that I like where he said, people fear what they can't understand, hate what they can't conquer. I guess it's just a theory of man. Now, I don't want to I don't want to sound like Ari Melber on his uh, on his show on MSNBC. He always makes a hip hop reference. But in any case, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> uh, I think that people do fear what they can't understand and they they want to. I think naturally, as human beings, we fill in the blanks with our own um, ideological uh, or imaginative, you know, uh, what, what we what we uh, ideally want the facts to be, right? Yeah. We don't think about if there's a gap there or if there's something that we don't know, we just fill it in on our own. Right. Uh, and, and I think we have become even more so uh, uh, like that as a society where we just like to think of things in a very succinct, you know, uh, very um, unnuanced, uh, uh, very, very, you know, um, big headlines, low, low, <laughs> low footnotes, no footnotes, is big headlines. Yeah. Exactly. It's just, yeah. it, it's very, it's, it's typically um, very, very uh, simple. Yeah, we like it to level. be as simple as possible. Yeah. And, and I feel like, uh, as a result of that, we've become intellectually lazy and we, we, I must want to say we, I don't mean us on this podcast. No, fine. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, generally as Americans and people worldwide, I think uh, we like and, and start to um, uh, sort of, um, I think have affection for politicians or other people who can put things in very, very simple terms. Yeah. Because um, it's easy for us to digest, yeah. even if it's not true. Yeah. And I think that that is something that we have to really wrestle with. Um, I think the social media age makes it difficult uh, for us to do that because, again, you know, you most of uh, the commentary, people don't read articles anymore for the most part. They read headlines and they read Twitter, Twitter uh, comments mm-hmm. or they read tweets or they read Facebook comments. Uh, uh, comments or a Facebook, uh, what do they call posts? I guess right. on Facebook, uh, Instagram captions, um, those sorts of things. And it's just, I think I saw the other day, someone was, uh, there was a TikTok 
about uh, breaking down the Russia and the Ukrainian. Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. And it was just in a TikTok and people were it went viral because people said, well, now I understand it. Right. And I don't know that that's true. Right. <laughs> that they really understand. It. I was really fascinated. But it, it, shout out to the black yeah. girl, black woman who did that. But it was kind of like, mm, this is very yeah. simplistic, but it lacked a lot of nuance and understanding. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it sounded good. And for people who would have absolutely no understanding of the conflict, maybe it is a good starting point. Right. But it is that just a good starting point. It's not um, a holistic understanding of what's going on, because, again, there's a lot more nuance than that. So um, in any event, I guess I'm long winded way of saying that, 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 yeah, I think that um, we should spend a lot more time thinking about the layers Mm -hmm. of particular issues as opposed to the surface level um, and not be so drawn to the, uh, you know, the, the delicious headlines and tweets and, uh, you know, Facebook posts and what have you that make us feel good and that are uh, overly simplistic of, of, of whatever it is the issue is. And in this case, we're talking about Ukraine and Russia conflict. Mm -hmm. What about you, James? Like, you know, just, you know, again, just thinking about how, like, you know, anti-communist rhetoric and like the ties of black, the black civil rights movement, and like, what are your thoughts on that? So, for me, and I think this is something we're going to get into later on. Mm-hmm. When we talk about suppression of thought, yeah. suppression of certain ideologies, and the discussion about them in our public school system and our universities. Mm-hmm. I had an amazing conversation with a relative of mine when seven mm-hmm. as you mentioned you know i spent some time in the military my father served in the military and so i grew up in germany wow and the early years of my life if you want to talk about cold war cold war excuse me hysteria that's what we experienced we had these things called neo raids mm. nuclear emergency operation raids so just imagine being you know a kindergartner or a first grader in school yeah and I went to something called the Department of Defense Dependent School System. So it's military schools based in Berlin, Germany. And they'd have these soldiers come in and they would say, you live at least a mile or so away from the communists who want to destroy America. Mm-hmm. And if they launch nuclear weapons, maybe we'll have about 15 minutes. And so we would go through these drills, and that's horrifying, you know, terrifying for a young child, you know, six, seven, eight years old, you start to think of Russians as these demons, you know, who're going to do these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And I remember one summer going back to the United States and talking to an uncle, and he said, listen, you know, when I think of the, quote, communist, I think of the people who helped save the Scottsboro Boys. Mm. And I couldn't really grasp what he was saying at the time, but later on in college, I read about the case of the Scottsboro Boys mm. and how the NAACP partnered with the American Communist Party and American Socialist Party. Mm to help save these young men. And, you know, for people who don't know about it, it was really a very terrible case. You had several young African-American men who were falsely accused of beating up white men and raping two white women. Right. And, but for the funding and the logistical support of the American Communist Party and Socialist Party, they would have been railroaded. Right. And the important thing I think we need to understand is that there has been a very strong relationship between communists and socialists in this country and African-Americans. Yeah. Not just in this country, but another thing that we don't think about is internationally. Mm. If we go to the latter part of the 1930s, the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Where you had a proxy war between fascists supporting the Franco regime and communists supporting the regime that, or the 
group that wanted to overthrow that regime, you had the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, close to about 90 or 100 African-Americans who felt such an alliance to communists and socialists that they flew from the United States to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Mm. So I guess this is really a way of saying that I agree with you that there has always been an attempt in this country to link anti-communism to white nationalism and racism. Yeah. But for one reason, because the people who were trying to oppress us and keep us down realized that there were communists and socialists who were trying to help us. Right. Now, you know, did they perhaps have their own selfish means and reasons? Of course. Right. But, you know, if you talk to a lot of older African-Americans, they will tell you they recognize the value that communists and socialists brought to the struggle to try to help liberate us. Right. Right. No doubt. So, no, actually, this actually goes into the next part, and it's... um, Tying in like CRT, you know, the the debate and also what's happening in Russia. And because of that, I'm actually going to play a clip, um, you know, uh, reporter Terrell Starr, who's actually in Ukraine. Um, So let me know your thoughts. Ways in this moment, one of the differences is that the propaganda coming out of the Kremlin that, you know, circulates in the media space and creates narratives. Um, it's being completely rejected, full stop, up front, uh, by many folks in the media. And earlier today, you were reporting on what you've been seeing in Kiev, and you mentioned that piece about Russia's disinformation. Let's take a listen to that. Be mindful of where you're getting your information. If it's not a verified source that you trust and respect, um, please do not share that information. Part of Russia's attack is disinformation. <sighs> um and finally, anything that comes out of the Kremlin is a lie. Why do you believe everything coming out of the Kremlin is a lie? Because it is. Um, you know, uh, there, there's very little that that Putin has said about Ukraine that Putin said during his speech a few days ago, acknowledging the ind- the so-called independence of the, the Luhansk and Donbass regions. Listen, I, I told you before, what, but what, what's happening right now is Putin's critical Ukraine theory. He's manufacturing history. He's manufacturing a conflict in order to suppress a group of people. Um, the way that Putin is discussing Ukrainian uh, history and so Ukrainian society is, 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 you know, is very much how white racists are challenging critical race theory in the United States. Anything that decides that it wants to be independent, it is suppressed and it is met by a historical um, logic and irrationality. Um, and more importantly, he, he specifically says that he wants to denazify uh, Ukraine. Uh, and I find that interesting because I know myself and, um, and and several of my black colleagues specifically chose to study in Ukraine because the Nazis are in Russia, uh, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, as opposed to Ukraine, because we, we decided that Ukraine was a safer place for us to understand the, the, the history of Russia than being in Russia itself. And we all know this just from a visceral personal experience, but also studying in the region. And so everything that he says literally is not the truth. And you pretty much have to treat him like Trump during a press conference, because everything that comes out of his mouth um, is a revision of, of, of history. And you have to treat him as a hostile individual to the truth. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'll start with you, James. I know you were kind of 
Like, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I think very, very astute. But I think it raises a larger point here, which is that, you know, when you say this, you can be accused of engaging in the dreaded term moral equivalency to yeah. try to say that the United States and Russia are the same. Mm. But imagine if I gave you the following hypothetical. A major global power yeah. decides to engage in a false flag operation, specifically destroying one of its own uh, naval ships in order to set up the pretext for a war which would allow it to acquire territory. Okay. We gave you that pretext. Everybody would say, well, hey, that's what's going on now in Ukraine. Well, <laughs> that's what the United States did. Remember the Maine. Mm. Yeah. And we destroyed that ship, in fact, killing some of our own troops yeah. so that we could have the pretext to be able to launch that war and acquire territory in places like the Philippines and in Cuba. And I want to keep making this point time and time again throughout this podcast, and it's this. We in this country don't know our history, mm -hmm. but people in Russia and in other countries do. Right. And as a result, when we often wonder why they do the things that they do, it's because we lack the moral standing. We lack the moral high ground. We can't tell them that we're better than them because they know about the things that this nation has done. And not just hundreds of years ago. They yeah. know what we've done just as recently as a few months ago. Right. There's absolutely no doubt that during the latter part of the Trump administration, mm -hmm. There were individuals working with our intelligence and law enforcement agencies here to stage the coup in Haiti. Right. <laughs> you think the Russians don't know about that? Of course they know about that. Right. And I guess part of the point I want to make today is that if we want to influence and change the behavior of nations like Russia and China, we cannot give them the rhetorical ammunition that they can use, which is to say... Don't tell us about these things when you're doing the same thing. Well, you know, the thing that's fascinating is that, you know, we have this anti-intellectual environment, right? And so um, it's created this movement where people are, I guess for lack of a better term, you know, leaders like keep them fat and stupid. You know what I mean? Like, let's keep them fat and stupid. Like, let's not, let's increase, you know, the, let's not, let's not put any restrictions on diet, but let's put restrictions on learning. And so, and it, when you do fat and stupid, it makes us lazy. And, we're, and as Gabe said, like intellectually lazy, we don't want to search for information. And it's, it turns into this thing of like, you know, Germany needs to do the burning of books, right? Because it gives us the lack of context to what's happening in the world. And as I mentioned earlier in the opening, like the string theory, everything relates to one, into a one, one another. Um, you know, I'm fascinated how he tied in CRT. First of all, shout out to Terrell Sarah, a black man reporting in Ukraine. But, you know, he, he tied in CRT because you see that's what's happening. And it's not with CRT. Just in, you know, they're even doing uh, books on around the Jewish faith. And then, you, of course, you talk about books surrounding um, uh, communism and, and its socialism. And so one of the things I was found fascinating was in... Uh, one state, and I think it's Tennessee, they outlawed the book of the animal farm. And I remember reading that book as an elementary, it's early as elementary. And, you know, one of the things about that book is that it talked about, um, if you don't recall, it was the, 
it was George Orwell, and it's a, it's a novel, and it summarized that basically tells the allegorical tale about an animal on a farm who rose up in revolt and to banish the human farm and to seek to govern themselves on a farm under a free and democratic animal society. Of course, that pig, uh, you know, ended up taking galvanizing power and, you know, taking the animals under a more dictator, dic, dictatorship of an ideal. But it said the initial... Uh, offspring of the idea was equality because they were being treated like stock, literally, and the labor and was a conversation surrounding labor and leadership. Um, that's a book I was reading in elementary school. That book is now being, you know, eliminated along with other things. And it's like, why are we, why are we doing this? What is the cause of, you know, not having a true intellectual um, discourse surrounding this, our society, whether it's race, um, culture, or even um, as in this term, like labor. Um, what are your thoughts, Gabe? Well, I mean, you know, I think it goes back to uh, what we talked about before, and that it is intellectual laziness. And I think even more so than that, I think we like putting labels on things mm-hmm. because those labels allow us to distill it down even more. It, 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 a certain label can mean so many different things now, right. and. You know, by labeling something, you speak so many other words about it, right? right. Socialist. There's a face for socialism, right? right? There's a face for for what we consider to be communism in America today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, think about all of the one word labels that one particular political party here has used to weaponize um, their own, you know, uh, ideology right they can put labels on people and by putting one a single word on someone it means so many different other things right so um i feel like you know uh I, my, by the fact I, I gotta look at that did you say tennessee was the state that uh, to, I, think, animal form? I think it was like it was tennessee it was a number of different books they banned and it was okay, like yeah. a lot of a lot of books they included within it it was just so um and I think you're right yeah yeah and so it was just like why are we and it, it to me, it starts this campaign because I always say what happens in one state interrelates how every state, you know. And so, like, all these states are continually having the the, the movement of banning of books. There was, I think, in Alabama, there was one person in the state legislature who start, started to say, "Hey, you know, why there's even a Black History Month? Like, it starts, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's really that's that's a dangerous plight that we're starting, and you know." I know here in Florida, they've created the same thing. And it's like it's this environment of challenging intellectual or having an intellectual uh, 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 discourse among each other. Um, You know, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I I think that that is going to backfire. And here's why. Hmm. Because I think the more you try to um, suppress. Yeah the greater the interest becomes um, from the people that you're trying to uh, who, who you're trying to keep in the dark. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Kid, if you, if, if, if ki- you cannot keep kids from learning whatever they want to learn, there's an internet out there, right. regardless of what they learn at school, they are going to spend most of their time at home. Mm-hmm. So if they are aware that they that certain information is being kept from them. They're going to go and seek that information out. And unlike when we were growing up, when we had to rely on encyclopedias and 
you know, really what we learned in class in our textbooks, kids don't have to rely on that anymore. Right. There's a, you can get an internet, you can get a, you can get a, an education on YouTube today. Right. Right. So. Or on a podcast. (laughs) They can suppress it all they want. Right. But it's, but is it really being suppressed? It may not be taught at school, but I think, but, but I think a lot of the interest in keeping it, certain things from being taught in school is only going to raise the interest in the kids in kids from in kids to seek it out on their own in their own time. Mm-hmm. And if they have an Instagram account, they have a Facebook account, they're going to learn this information right. and they can research it and they can determine for themselves what's actually true. Right. But I think it's really, really, really what it is. It's, it's an admission and it is sort of a, um, it is a response to the reality that what was being taught in schools up until this point was very um, filtered. Right. It was not always true. It was not. It did not always consider the, the different viewpoints. Right. Um, it, it, it was. It was limited in in in, uh, in, in a sense. Yeah. Well, I think in a, in a large sense, mm-hmm. and that you know now. We, we live in an era where information cannot be suppressed right. is easily. So I feel like, you know, regardless of what states try to do with with suppressing books like Animal Farm, kids can kids can find Animal Farm. Right. right, right. Or whatever other book they want to find. Well, if they, but it won't be until like after college when they're introduced to other forms. And that's why there's also this this um, this movement of, you know, don't go to college or you know college is a bastion for li- liberal left wing right. ideology and you know it's like the more you're educated the more you're going to get away from the you know box of right wing you know um you know the uh, right wing diet of ink- uh, of ignorance you know right um right you know and so i'm sorry you wanted to add i wanted to bring something up and, and gabe i wanted to address your point though about the inability of the state to suppress thoughts ideas and books mm-hmm. And I certainly agree with you that, you know, listen, I can remember being 12, 13, 14, and the minute that my parents told me not to listen to a record album, I was going to find a way to find it. Right, okay. right, right. Uh, you guys are too young to remember, but there was a time when there was a song called Darling Nikki by Prince, I, which I, 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 <laughs> I was I told not to listen to. Oh. The very first thing I did is I made certain <laughs> I was going to listen to this because that's right. just human nature, particularly dealing with youth. But mm. I think there's something a little more sinister now about what's going on and it's not just keeping it from children. Yeah. A lot of these states are passing laws which will make it so harmful for teachers or professors to even talk about it, Mm. that that's going to have an educational effect on students. Certainly if you, let's say for example, ban a book in school system, like for example, right now as we're doing this podcast, Mm -hmm. Polk County, Florida, not too far away from us, Polk's County school system is debating whether or not to get rid of Beloved and the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. <laughs> right. Two classic books by, you know, one of the greatest authors ever in the world. There's right. a reason, obviously, for that because, you know, she talks about some harsh, brutal truth in both books about white supremacy and slavery. Right. But if the issue is just, okay, well, we're going to ban these books, I wouldn't feel as badly about it because you're right, Gabe, students are going to be able to find a way to get the books. Right. My concern is in a lot of these bills, if they become law, it gives the state the ability to fire teachers. It gives individuals the ability to bring lawsuits that could destroy people financially. Yeah. 
and that could have an impact. Okay. Um, there's this in this very state. Um, they're passing a budget that would, if you, if the if school district um, teaches or it, it does it, they, I think it was like two hundred million dollars. <laughs> defund education. That's literally what they're talking about. Defund education, like throughout the state, you know, it, they can outline uh, taking away two hundred million dollars from school districts. Absolutely, collectively. By Absolutely, the way. Yeah. and you know, for me, the value of a book has never been in just reading it. Yeah, it's been after having read it, having had the opportunity to discuss it with other people. Yeah, and I can foresee a situation if this really gets out of hand where students would have to read it and then have almost kind of like a dead poet society type situation where kids are beating off in a uh-huh. cave somewhere privately, right? you know, in the hopes that no one finds out about it. Yeah. But I can see a lot of teachers saying, you know what, look, I've got a mortgage, I've got bills, I've got a family to take care of. Right. We're not going to talk about Animal Farm. And I'm glad you brought that up because obviously a book authored by George Orwell, well, what did he talk about in 1984? Right. Thought crime. Right. You know, the idea that the very definition of a dictatorship mm-hmm. is when you get to the point where just even your thoughts can be viewed as criminal. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going. And think of this ironically. Right. <laughs> 1984 was a critique of fascist. Authoritarian. Yeah. Government. Yeah. Yeah. And yet so-called the state of Florida, which is supposedly the free state of Florida. Yeah. We're implementing things that we criticize Russia in the former Soviet Union. For. What is that whole thing? Like we often become our greatest fears. Absolutely. You know, we become what we behold. We come, become what we behold. Um, I wanted to, um, you know, uh, uh, not shift the conversation, but kind of push the conversation forward and then talk about um, white nationalism and in, in relation to Christian ideology. And with that, I'm going to play a clip here. So here's the deal. Also, you know, Russia is uh, a, Christian nationalist nation. They're actually Orthodox Christian and mm. Russian Orthodox. So, you know, I actually support Putin's right to protect his people and always put his people first, but also protect their Christian values. I identify more with Russian, uh, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Uh, so, you know, like there is that, you know, that there, there is that there. And, you know, Christian nationalist countries also are a threat to the global uh, regime, like the Luciferian regime. It wants to mash everything together. But Putin takes care of his people. He looks out for his people. I watched as he deported, like they literally walked them through the streets, the criminal illegals who were coming into their country. Yeah. They walked them out and they escorted them out and they said, get out. You know, I can respect that. I can respect that. And I can respect the fact that uh, Putin does everything he can to protect uh, his people. I... Absolutely love that clip. <laughs> I love that clip. No, seriously. Um, who, who was that, by the way? I'm just curious. Oh, I got to find a she name. She is yeah. a young female running for yes, um, a Senate seat. Yes, I believe in Delaware because yes. I saw that clip as well. Yes. A, a national, a, a state Senate seat, or no, national, national, national Senate seat. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, um, wow, yeah. It, here's the thing about it, and I think I. People think I'm being crazy, but, you know, the strongman ideology, the playbook that's followed by right wing um, dictators, it, you know, falsely pretends that to represent a leftist movement. Right. And it, you know, because it says left wing policies are the best way to win popular support, but they often are not honest about what they're really doing is right wing ideology. And so the strongman rule or the one party monopoly is something that's very attractive to people because this person gives off these populistic ideas. But then once they get in office, they become very totalitarian in their in their um, leadership style. Case in point, a guy named Donald Trump, um, who was offering a prime example of this. In his campaign, he focused on appealing to the blue-collar working class by promising to implement 
a number of different like quote unquote left wing policies, you know, such as, you know, um, uh, such as like, you know, Medicaid for Medicare for all and get ridding, uh, get ridding of the uh, and taxes for the middle class and things and, and bringing jobs in for everybody that everybody can work. And but as soon as he got into office, the first thing he ended up doing is operating in a totalitarian ideal by, you know, had the first billionaire cabinet. Every person in the cabinet had was a billionaire or had ties to a billionaire. Gave a tax cut to him and his friends. You know, um, created narratives that were suppression to free to free speech. And so, you know, he ran on ideals that, like you know, as most dictators had to do, this idea like, yeah, you know, everybody, we're, I'm gonna, you know, a, 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 a chicken in every pot and everything like that. But as soon as I get in office, I'm going to then I adhere to a right wing ideology of, you know of, you know, strong man rule. And that's where it became the attraction between him and Putin and, and obviously uh, um, the, uh, the person in North Korea, you know, because he was, I, he likes the idea of people, uh, a person just implement, implementing and imposing their will on the, on a, 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 a democratic or free society, which is really dangerous, but it's still appealable to those on the right, on conservatives about their, they like this idea. Like they say they don't, but they do. And it's case in point with this woman who's running for U.S. Senate says, I like that guy, Putin. I fucks with him. He's pretty cool, you know, because, you know, he's really like, you know, he's looking out for the Christian ideology. And, you know, what they don't really understand is that Putin just a couple days ago or, just, you know, by the time you hear this, it'd be a couple days ago in St. Petersburg Square, there are over there were the, literally tens of thousands of people who were protesting this war in St. Petersburg Square in, in Russia. And he jailed 1,700 of them in opposition of, you know, he's like, I'm not dealing with this shit. Go to the gulags. Y'all are, we're, we're not, y'all are going to, y'all going to be, you know, breaking up rocks in Siberia. We're not, we're not have, having you guys, you know, uh, implicating your free speech. What do you think this is, America? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and so, but these are the things that people are very attracted to. Um, you know, Gabe, what are your thoughts? You know, this whole Christian evan, which I think in America, the term is evangelical. It's just laughable at this point and frankly offensive. Yeah. You know, the idea that he's a Christian because an evidence of this is that he looks out for his people and evidence of that is that he, he, he sends people who are not Russian out of the country and, and tells them to get out of here is just... That, that has nothing to do with Christianity. So again, it, it takes me back to the point I made earlier. It's this labeling, right? By calling him Christian, it really means something else, but it's a safe term historically to, to be Christian in America. But today it means something totally different. It's almost like, and not to get too far off pace, but, 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 uh, or too, too, not to digress too much, and get too far off subject, but sort of like the American flag, right? right. And this patriotism. Right. And that's to, you know, historically having, you know, waving the American flag and being a patriot is something that is, uh, you know, very respected in this country and, and, and re beyond reproach. But now we know what that, it means so many different other things. And it's like a code, if you will, right. um, when you use words like he's a Christian, he's a Christian. What is what is what is Christ like about Vladimir Putin? Right. 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 What, what is Christ like? What does he do in, in any shape or form? Um, you know, 
is uh, personifies uh, what Jesus Christ stood for. What is Christ I'm like curious. about Trump? Like, what is even Christ like about Trump? I, I, you know, I, I have the same question. What is it yeah. that makes that person Christ-like? It's almost, again, it's just a label. And then by that label, it's supposed to mean something right. that is coded, right? right. It's, it's all wrapped up into one nice little label. He's Christian. Oh, well, that means, or he's evangelical. Oh, well, that means, or he has the support of evangelicals. Well, that means these other things that we can't really talk about on the surface, but we all understand. Right. So, you know, it's just, it's just, um, it's, 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 it's offensive, frankly, because I, I I consider myself a Christian. Um, and I don't, frankly, don't see anything that's Christ-like about Vladimir Putin. I don't care what he calls himself. Um, you know, people can call themselves whatever they want, right. but my, my question is, how do you conduct yourself? What evidence is, what evidence um, is there based on your actions that you actually are what you say you are? And I don't really see it. So it, again, this is just propaganda. It's, it, you know, you just mentioned the, the, uh, I guess almost 2000 protesters who were jailed in Russia. Yeah. That's despite the fact that Russia has state sponsored television. So right. despite the fact that they have been fed, all Russia has been fed this one particular narrative about why they should invade Ukraine. Right. Nonetheless, right. so many Russians f- believe that they should not. Right. Um, be be interfering with Ukraine's sovereignty, that they should not be in, in Ukraine. And those are just the, the 2,000 or so folks who have been arrested. Right. Most of the other folks are just afraid to say it. Right. So again, this goes up to my point I made earlier, no matter how much you try to suppress the truth, right. the truth has a, has a way of finding its way to the top. And I think that in the long run, um, you know, this is going to be a very, very uh, dark chapter in, in, in Russian history. Um, and you know, I guess we'll get to this point, this point, too. I'm very thankful that Donald Trump is not the president right now, because I think if he were the president, it might be a dark chapter in American history as well. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. And, you know, one thing, I, you know, before I lay this question to you, is I was thinking about as you're talking um, Reagan and, you know, one of Reagan's big early before he got into presidency, when he was the governor of California, um, the Black Panthers went up to the state capitol and they, you know, <laughs> all, you know, came in there with their guns and talking about you know rights and whatnot, and that was actually the inspiration between between, uh, between the ex- extensive gun laws. Actually, they changed the gun laws. Be like, you can't bring a gun to, on state property anymore. You know, after the Black Panthers, but it was also Reagan who then um, started instituting strongman policies on civil rights movements in the in. Um, California, and this helped propel him into, you know, a staunch Republican right wing conservative in the national circles. And so these things of strongman ideology, especially white men uh, stamping down on free speech and and, and expression um, has an appeal that goes beyond Donald Trump. I just wanted to make sure that was very clear. Uh, go, You know, go ahead, uh, James. So uh, the person who <laughs> said those terrible words from the clip that you played, because I just want everyone who's listening to know exactly who this person is. Yeah. It's Lauren Witzke. Ah. And she is the Republican candidate for the Senate. Um, she's running for the Senate seat in Delaware. And you played the clip, but uh, there's something that I want to emphasize again, which I think is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Quote, Russia is a Christian nationalist nation. Yeah. Putin... 
puts his people first. What's his people? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, bottom line. So what do you mean, uh, his people? <laughs> right, right, right. So let's do the black translator. Right. Bottom line, Putin is great because he's taking care of white people, unlike right. Joe Biden, who wants to look out for Everybody. other people. Right. Exactly. Right. And she talks about, quote, I identify more with Russian, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden because Christian nationalist countries are a threat to the global regime like the Luciferian regime that wants to mash everything together. Yes. <laughs> Back in the 1950s, this would have been George Wallace saying segregation today. Segregation, <laughs> segregation now. Segregation Forever. Forever. <laughs> why? Right. Because we don't want to have interracial sex. Right. You know, the reason why Putin is so attractive to so many people, you know, particularly Tucker Carlson, who was essentially, you know, allowed his broadcast over the past several months to become pro-Putin TV. Right. Russia's their fantasy land. Yeah. A place where they don't have to deal with complaining blacks who want to constantly talk about slavery and critical race theory. Right. In their mind, a place where you don't have to deal with Mexican immigrants coming across the border. Right. A place where they don't have to worry about things like crime or being canceled if they use the N-word. Mm-hmm. So they love this idea of Russia. Mm-hmm. They'd be quite surprised if they actually went to Russia and saw just how multi-ethnic it is and multi-religious. Right. You know, but let's also recognize one thing. You know, Putin, what's his background? Counterintelligence. Yeah, counter, yeah, yeah. Disinformation. KGB. Right. Yeah. If you take a look at Twitter, you'll see they have their bot farms. Yeah. They have the people who hop on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and constantly spread this idea of Russia as a nation that would be attractive to the right wing mm-hmm. for one reason, because they know that that helps to sow conflict and dissension right. in our country. So you're right. Trump, Giuliani, Tucker Carlson, Ms. Witzke, they love Putin because really what they're saying is, God, I wish I had a strong white man in this country. To lead us. To lead us and to stop people like us right from having <laughs> from talking yeah right yeah. they would love ideally to be able to you know listen to this podcast and then hop on the phone and call 911 and say hey yeah those people are talking that critical race theory stuff you better go arrest them right right <laughs> yeah you know actually because you brought up tucker carlson i'm actually going to play a clip which leads us into the um the next uh, subject so and i'm not going to play the entirety but since i had to suffer through listening it i'm going to you know i'm going to play a tad bit of it and uh we can comment off of that Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Since the day that Donald Trump became president, Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. It's not a suggestion, it's a mandate. Anything less than hatred for Putin is treason. Many Americans have obeyed this directive. They now dutifully hate Vladimir Putin. Maybe you're one of them. Hating Putin has become the central purpose of America's foreign policy. It's the main thing that we talk about. Entire cable channels are now devoted to it. Very soon, that hatred of Vladimir Putin could bring the United States into a conflict in Eastern Europe. Before that happens, it might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. So why does permanent Washington hate him so much? 
If you've been watching the news, you know that Putin is having a border dispute with a nation called Ukraine. Now, the main thing to know about Ukraine for our purposes is that its leaders once sent millions of dollars to Joe Biden's family. Not surprisingly, Ukraine is now one of Biden's favorite countries. Biden has pledged to defend Ukraine's borders even as he opens our borders to the world. That's how it works. Invading America is called equity. Invading Ukraine is a war crime. So with every day, we move closer to some kind of conflict with Russia, conflict that could easily spin out of control, given that the people running this have no fine motor skills. The administration assures us this has nothing at all to do with repaying Joe Biden's personal debts to Ukrainian oligarchs. Not at all. It's completely and totally unrelated. The point here is to defend democracy. Not that Ukraine is a democracy. It is not a democracy. Ukraine's president has arrested his main political opponent. He has shut down newspapers and television stations that have dared to criticize him. So in American terms, you would call Ukraine a tyranny. But Joe Biden likes Ukraine, so Putin bad war good. How will this conflict affect you? Well, it affect you quite a bit, actually. Energy prices in the United States are about to go way up. And that means that everything you buy will become much more expensive, from the food you eat to the car you drive to tickets you need to take your family on vacation this summer, assuming you can still afford vacation by then. You're so here's the funny thing. It's a lot, first of all, a lot of things problematic in that. But he's, he's doing a, something very, very slick here. Number one, he's picking up Putin and saying how great he is. But he's actually talking about things that are very, very important to you know, certain segment of Americans of the lack of, you know, talks about immigration. He mentioned, he slides that in there, right? He says, you know, they're taking our jobs. They're coming after us. They're not the end, you know, they, they, they. So Putin's not the enemy. The, these guys coming in are, 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 are really hurting us. And we shouldn't be worried about a person over there uh, like Putin, who wants to, you know, take sovereignty over, you know, a, uh, his, some, you know, far off land. We should be worrying about what's really happening here in America. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. It's a very, very fascinating clip when you link when you think about it and break it down. Um, you know, what were your thoughts, James? I think to me, what is most telling about that clip is that he starts off by saying, why should I hate him? He hasn't called me a racist. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, that lets you know exactly how this ties into what we've been talking about today, mm -hmm. which is that the admiration on the part of people like Tucker Carlson and others for Vladimir Putin is largely based on wanting to live in a society where they don't have to deal with black people. Right. That's it. They would love it. You know, reason that. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. Or Trump. black people that are very, that care about, you know, talk about race and culture. Exactly, right. exactly. They can't handle it, of course. I mean, if they had an America full of Candace Owens and, you know, right. Jason Whitlocks, they'd be incredibly happy. They, they, my God, we're just so blessed to have black people like this who are docile and love us more than they love themselves. Right. But, um, you know, that to me was the thing that stood out. I actually saw that clip last week, and the very first thing that he said was, well, he hasn't called me a racist, so why should I hate him? Right. That's how he opens the show. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, let's not forget one very well-known documented fact about him. Tucker Carlson pretends to be a journalist. No, oh, yeah. Uh, the people who work for Fox News pretend to be journalists. I can't see how anyone, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, would praise Vladimir Putin, knowing his well-documented history of assassinating and killing members of the press. Right. Okay. Right. You know, let's push aside what's happening in Ukraine or, you know, various other foreign policy misadventures on the part of Russia. Mm -hmm. He has demonstrated time and time again that his way of dealing with bad press is to kill 
journalist. Yeah. How can you support that? How can you like him? How can you admire that? Right. As we're sitting here today recording this podcast, as I'm sure you guys know, just a few miles from us, the Conservative Political Action Committee is taking place here in Orlando mm. at the convention center. It's been going on, I think now it's at its third or fourth day. Every day, a speaker has taken the podium praising Putin and Russia. Why? Because at least it's not woke. And right. we know that wokeness is right. the new N-word. Right. So, you know, again, the love for Putin and for Russia as they see it is because it's this idealized state where they don't have to put up with black people like us. Right. What are your thoughts, Gabe? Well, the scary thing about hearing that and also knowing that Tucker Carlson's show is one of the most, if not the most popular show in that time segment is that if if people who listen to Tucker Carlson listen to anything else that was objective, they wouldn't listen to that anymore because they would realize how how much how little fact um, was spoken in that. I don't know how long the segment the, the clip was. It was, like, it was actually a six minute clip, but I just cut it down to like two minutes. It, or some change, it, right? it was so. It, it is. It was the antithesis of factual right. information. It was. It was false. It was. Um, it, it was. It was. It's propaganda. It was, That's what it is. It if you have any, yeah. If you if you have any sense of reality, if you try to understand what the truth is, you couldn't listen to something like that um, and continue to listen to it and and walk away from it thinking that you've been informed. Right. Um, so it is. That's what's scary about it. You know, it's also interesting. This, um, you know, this idea that people love Putin on the right and that they admire him, his leadership style and so on and so forth. Well, but they also love capitalism. Right. In America. Right. right. You know, <laughs> Russia's economy, even though Russia is. OK, so so. Um, I read a statistic that uh, I think Russia's land mass is 10%. It's more than 10% of the world's land, right, in Russia, okay? It's a huge country, right. all right, um, with a lot of people in it. Yet Russia's economy is about the size of Texas' economy, right? okay? Right. So so if, if Russia is so great, yet, cap, yet, yet we – are so remember the whole the, remember the whole mask thing yeah right we need to we need to make sure that we you know we we don't close down the economy yeah. it's so important for the economy to get back going the economy the economy the economy the economy yeah and yet they praise Vladimir Putin for being this great leader who is I mean there couldn't be someone who is more opposed to a capitalistic society right. than, than Vladimir Putin is, yet he's such a great leader, right? right? Who's a Christian and all this. So it's it, it, the hypocrisy is, um, I mean, we could go on all day about it and it doesn't make any sense. And anyone who's objective about this will see that. But I think that is part of the, the, the plan, which doesn't, you know, I, I, I plan that's never going to come to fruition. And that is to keep people as ignorant as possible. That way they'll just believe or whatever we tell them. But again, our access to information nowadays is so vast. 
Um, you don't have to have a lot of money to, to, to learn. You can be the poorest person on earth. And if, well, I don't want to say on earth, but certainly you can be very, very poor, let's just say, and have access to information as long as you have an internet connection uh, and you can learn whatever you want to learn. So I think that this is short-sighted. Um, you know, who takes Tucker Carlson seriously? I mean, yeah. I, I hope uh, I, apparently a lot of people, and that's, again, that's kind of scary, right. but I think in the end, this is a short game um, and not something that's going to last. And I think that in the end, you know, whatever they're trying to do, uh, the Republican Party, I think they realize that they are on a shot clock um, they, and eventually, e- eventually that clock's going to run out and people are going to realize that they have just been um, led astray and duped and lied to. And I think it's going to be a very long time before they're able to establish uh, credibility anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, I, okay, just, go ahead. One quick thing, Gabe. I'd like to be as optimistic as you are, and, and I'm not, and here's why. And with regard to who takes Tucker Carlson seriously, interestingly enough, um, <laughs> he was sued for defamation. And right. the lawyers, said that it, was, right. it was entertainment. The exactly, judge said that. Exactly. His own lawyers defended him by saying no one takes him seriously. You know, everyone <laughs> understands that he, you know, engages in lying and stretching of the truth. But sadly, there are a lot of people who do. And I think you just have to, if you hop on Twitter or, and I just found out about this website. Something called Duck Duck Go. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess apparently it's an alternative to Google, and it's favored <sighs> by a lot of people on the right or the alt right. One of the things that we don't talk about, I think, enough in this society, mm-hmm. is that an increasing number of people, particularly on the far right, yeah. are getting radicalized through alternative methods of getting information. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, on the dark web you know, new social media platforms that we really don't talk about enough. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I describe Tucker Carlson as sort of the gateway drug to just outright <laughs> far right racism and white supremacy. Yeah. You know, it starts off with you being frustrated and wondering why, quote, we can't control the borders. And then a month later, you know, you're in some Nazi chat room talking about how much you love you know, Vladimir Putin and how you can't wait to maybe stage another January 6th. So, you know, uh, you know, just all of this that we're talking about here, the admiration for a strong man, you know, the admiration for aggressive tactics, the yearning for the sort of white supremacist nation, mm-hmm. I think all of that came together January 6th of 2021. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you go back and you look at a lot of those people and you look at their social media activities and allegiances, you know, it usually started off with people, some of whom maybe a few years ago were moderate, but then they started watching Fox News, started watching Tucker Carlson, started, you know, then looking at things on Twitter and TikTok, and then eventually, you know, they're storming the Capitol. Think of it this way. We often talk about how certain individuals from other countries become radicalized, but yet we don't use that same model when talking about Americans. And I think we need to because it is a serious problem. So I Gabe, I hope that you're right, that this is not going to work, but I think the proof will be in the pudding with regard to two things. First, what's going to happen with the midterm elections. And then I think secondly, you know, what's going to happen obviously in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Gabe. 
No, no, I, 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 I hope I'm right too. <laughs> I, I do hope I'm right. I think you do raise a good point. Um, you know, and, and, and as you were saying that, I was starting to think of people that I know personally who are intelligent, educated people who I thought were very objective, who have been. I've heard, I've spoken with them recently, um, and I'm a little shocked at some of the things that I hear them saying. And, and I think that you can become radicalized before you know it. No one raises their hand and said, well, very few people raise their hand and say, I want to become radicalized. Today. Right. It, it, you know, what happens is you're, you're being radicalized. You don't realize you're being radicalized because you are in a silo uh, or for lack of a better term, perhaps a cult. When I was growing up, I used to think that in order to be in a cult, you had to go, you know, pack your bags and go to some, uh, some, some, uh, you know, uh, desolate, yeah, some camp uh, somewhere, and yeah, 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 you know, yeah, isolated. exactly. Yeah. Live, live with people, yeah. um, and swear your allegiance and and cut yourself off from the world physically. Yeah. But now you can join a cult by again, you know, listening to a particular person every single day. And we all live. We live on the internet, so we may not live in a commune, but the yeah. commune yeah. may be Facebook, exactly. Facebook groups, right? Exactly. And or you follow the same people who spout the same ideology every day, and before you know it, and you don't have to. There's so much out there that you know that leans towards a particular ideology. You don't have to fill in the gaps with anything else. Right. right? As soon as one show ends, there's another one that starts. Right. Um, and you know, you can, before you know it, you know, become radicalized, yeah. unfortunately. And I think you're exactly right. So that's what happened. That's what we saw on January the 6th. Now, a lot of those people have said, have sort of, at least what I've, I've seen, it's almost like some of them have come out of the trance, yeah. not all, obviously, but I think having had to show up uh, in court uh, and have to pay for lawyers and some of them have had to spend some time in jail or pay some some restitution or something, had to have some penalty imposed. They have a, have a criminal record now, of course, and now they are permanently tarnished uh, for having participated in something like that. Um, but you know, that's a very, very small percentage of the people who, who subscribe to that same ideology, which is unfortunate. Well, the dangerous part about like that whole thing and was like Condoleezza Rice, like literally a year before, after like she went on a view and said, why are we still talking about this stuff? Stuff doesn't matter. And that's, that was really disturbing to me because there are people who identify as Republicans. Like it wasn't a big deal. That was such a long time ago, just 12 months ago. And it's not a big deal. But what really we saw was that the radicalization to your point, Gabe, and, and your point, James, like there, there's thought that in order to take democracy, there has to be an authoritarian appeal. We have to storm the storm the Capitol and ch- and tell these people to change the vote and shift democracy because we don't like the outcome the way things are going. And that to me should have been more discussed. And there's going to be there, if there, you know, environment doesn't crumble on itself should be there are gonna be books written on the psychology of people who thought this was okay because you didn't yeah. and the people who even didn't storm the capital there are people who thought like yeah i can see why that would that why that's okay you know right. and that's the that to me is a problem and you were incited by the leader of the party who told him go up to the capital and tell him you don't like the way things turn out he kept trafficking and i hated the fact that mitch mcconnell you know cowardly as he now he says you know we're gonna move on past that but remember 
two weeks before that whole capital insurrection, he said, what is, you know, you know, what does it hurt to let them continue the process and see how it turns out? That was the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, but everybody else can see like, this is not going to end well. And mm-hmm. now that it didn't, it didn't end the way it was supposed to in a congenial manner. They were like, well, let's forget it and sweep it under the rug as Americans, uh, as American mythology tends to do. It's not a big deal. Sweep it under the rug. Let's move on. Right, right. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's also important, too, and this ties back to something we talked about you know, several minutes ago. You know, this whole notion of authoritarianism, of using force, of being macho, this is ingrained in American culture and politics, okay? I mean, <laughs> a lot of people forget about this, but he's passed away. I know shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but former Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, mm-hmm. okay? When he was a government official in Arizona, and he never disputed this because people wrote affidavits about it. He actually went to a line of voters waiting to vote in an election and walked up to blacks and Mexicans and asked them, are you citizens? Are you smart enough to vote? Do you have criminal records? And accosted people. They actually had to call the police on him. And when I think about the story, the reason I bring it up is because this has been a part of the far-right playbook for some time, the willingness to be aggressive and to use violence to preserve is what they see their country. As the American ideal. Right, right. Yeah. The American ideal being yeah. whiteness. And, you know, you see that, for example, with the encouragement of telling people, resist, take off your mask, be rude to people in department stores, accost stewardess pilots, security guards, you know, this idea that you're right, this country's ours, and you have the right to use the threat of violence or violence in order to accomplish what you want to. Think back to President Obama's administration when you would have town halls where they would encourage people to show up with AR-15s and weapons, Mm. you know, as a method of intimidation. So the admiration for Putin is because a number of Americans see things in him that they know they believe. Right. And that they've seen their parents and grandparents and great grandparents practice. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask, you know, I, I think it would be a disservice if I didn't even try to attempt to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Right. Um, I, I'm inspired by the fact that I went to the barbershop I, and you know, I know people are like, why are you going to barbershop? You're bald. But <laughs> as I have often said on the podcast that I go to the barbershop, not just cause I can't cut my own hair um, because I find it a fascinating environment of thought, you know, ranging from the highly, you know, informed to the rhetoric driven conversation. And, you know, you find yourself, you know, thinking, you know, in an unsophisticated, you know, uh, um, in an unsophisticated environment of you know, evaluation, you know, this is kind of the temperature of, Maybe, you know, the room or the the state or whatever. And so anyway, I say all that to say, when you talk to people in, you know, the barbershop and they say, man, you know, um, Putin's kicking the shit out of Biden, right? And you're like, you're like, what do you mean by that? You know, like, what does that even mean? And then you could tell, like, when somebody says something and it's the first time somebody's actually challenged them because... Yeah. You know, they're used mm-hmm. to being the smartest person in the room until you actually go to them and be like, well, expound upon what that happened. And I say it's not just a barbershop. Actually, that happened on my Facebook page. I made a joke. And then somebody who's actually a law, graduated from law school said, oh, you know, he's bullying. Putin's bullying Biden. 
and I ask him, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, and I, I, cause I knew where it was going, but I wanted him and this person, same thing in the barbershop to go ahead and dig yourself in a hole of tell right. me why you think, he, you know, Putin is bullying Biden, you know, based off of the action. And I just want, I say all that to say, um, people don't know shit about, you know, things. And I'm not saying I'm this geopolitical expert, but what I do know is that, you know, when the thoughts are like, why didn't we, why don't we stomping on, you know, Russia with happening in Ukraine? Well, dummy, you know, because we're, they're not in, they're not in NATO. And if we go ahead and rush out and start defending people who are not part of NATO, what is the impetus of actually people actually joining NATO? And I'm not, we'll talk about what actually NATO is and how it was, you know, we, uh, you know, the purpose of it now or the importance of it now, but what benefit does it help, you know, the U.S. government but putting itself in front of bullets for a country that is not, you know, that is not quote unquote aligned with its imperialistic ideals. Whether you believe in the imperialistic ideals is one is another conversation. But the fact of the matter is, you you can't defend a nation that is not part of the clique, you know, because then the people in the clique are like whoa whoa whoa, you had me sign up and be part of this clique. I got I had to get jumped into this gang. And the people ain't even jumped into this gang, and they're getting the same, you know, they're getting the same benefits and accoutrements of the gang, you know. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll get to you in a sense that day, but like, uh, uh, you know, Gabe, but like, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts, James? Well, I think first and foremost, a couple of things. Number one, it's important for people to understand that this is no doubt an act of aggression, right? And there is a natural impulse to say, well, shouldn't we do something about it, right? Well, first and foremost, there are a lot of things that take place behind the scenes that most people don't know about. Right. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there are elements of our intelligence agencies and our armed forces providing some help in a limited capacity and logistical support to the people of Ukraine. But I do think you make an important point, which is what exactly is our obligation right now? Right. Why should we send American men and women to the Ukraine to die. Right. The people who talk about, well, Biden is showing weakness, he's getting his butt kicked or whatever, these are people who are looking for any opportunity to criticize the president. Right. right? They don't like him, and they view this as somehow as a contest between Putin, President Biden, which it's certainly not. Right. You know, I actually was having this discussion with a few people last night, and someone said the same thing. And you know, I said, okay, so you appear to be of military age. Um, have you thought about volunteering and suiting up? And the person sort of paused, and I could see you know, the look in his eyes where he thought, well, I mean, I, someone else should go fight, right? You know, I'd rather sit here and be the armchair warrior. Right. But I think this raises a larger point, which is, you know, in the United States for quite some time, we've abandoned the idea of national service, particularly mandatory national service, of people serving in the military and being willing to, you know, sacrifice and risk their lives if necessary. Um, and so... You know, a lot of the far-right Republicans who are saying that, well, this shows weakness on the part of President Biden. Take, for example, someone like Ted Cruz. Do you think that he would be willing to suit up? No. <laughs> you know, so they, they really don't care. This is nothing more than an opportunity to be able to score some cheap political points. So right. to go back to what you said, when someone makes a comment like that, sometimes people say certain things, and that's an instant way of letting you know they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Right. You know, I heard someone a few weeks ago saying, you know, oh, I love crypto. You know, I went to the bank and got a couple of, you know, crypto coins. 
the minute I heard that, <laughs> I knew that was someone who, who had you like ab- word who knew like absolutely, word? <laughs> absolutely nothing about it. Which bank was that? Bank of America? Right, 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 <laughs> Wells Fargo? <laughs> exactly. You know, and at times like that, that's when it's just best to stop the conversation. And say, you know what? You right. have no idea what you're talking about. I have a limited amount of time on this earth, and I'm not going to waste any more minutes talking to you about it. Right. So, Gabe, I'm gonna. I want you to answer the question, but I'm gonna parlay this by actually uh, playing a clip. Um, you know, a quick uh, clip and, and see, get your thoughts on what we were talking about and as well as the clip. And continues our coverage live from the Pentagon. Uh, Jennifer, we know that we've, we haven't really seen the Pentagon do much because there are no troops involved. Uh, but the sanctions have not worked. Are, are the people at the Pentagon frustrated that our U.S. response has not been different? No, I wouldn't say that, Steve. In fact, they they knew that they had limited options going into this because Russia, of course, is a nuclear power and NATO and the U.S. are not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Their goal right now is to contain this and keep this from spilling over into an Article 5 nation. Uh, You talk about how the sanctions haven't worked. I don't know if that's really that we can say that yet. Overnight, uh, the stock market in Russia fell by half, 50 percent. This is just the beginning of what is being described to us as a shock and awe, if you will, of of rolling sanctions that are that have not even begun to be felt yet by the by Putin, by his oligarchs, by the cronies there. So. Um, so they're talking about the sanctions. And I thought that was really a fascinating thing because you've heard that. Oh, the sanctions ain't doing nothing. And I'm like, y'all don't know the fuck you're talking about because the sanctions are actually hurting them and you know uh, i'm gonna give credit where credit's due my barber said something really funny really great uh shout out to dave he said what's really dumb about it is that people say oh the sanctions aren't working like well well, think about it what would you want them to do uh would or what would you rather happen would you rather get punched in the face or somebody tell you you lost your job and you have no ability to earn everybody was like i'd rather get punched in the face I want. I don't want to. I don't want money to be taken away from me. Finan- taking money away from somebody is the f- best way to hurt them and hurt their capacity to continue on or get their motivations. You know. Um, what are your thoughts, Gabe? Just about what we're talking about and just the clip and everything. Well, you know, um, it's interesting. Vladimir Putin is independently very wealthy, right? Um, and Part of the reason why Russia has such a horrible economy is that the money is concentrated in very few hands. And he's certainly the biggest hand um, of all. Okay, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he's supposed to be this this Christian. Right. According to this Delaware Senate candidate um, and other people on the on a particular of a a particular political persuasion, um, you know, he, he has not conducted himself as such as we've already talked about. Okay, so so um, I think Vladimir Putin, uh, we have we as the United States and NATO has we have instituted sanctions against him both personally and against the country. And Biden, when he did that, said that it's going to take a while for these sanctions to start to come into effect. Right. right? Affect the country. But eventually they will. Vladimir Putin's plan, because he has run the country the way he has for so long, is that despite the fact that these sanctions are going to hurt my countrymen, the people who I represent, all of the people in Russia, I personally am going to be okay because I have I have I have 
uh, marshal the resources toward, you know, towards me. I have I have gathered and planned for this for a while. I think I heard one commentator say he has about one hundred million dollars or so um, that he has, despite the fact that he's no longer going to be have access to some of the banks around the, the world and so on. He has been planning this for a while. So he has gathered all these resources for himself, yet his country is going to suffer in the long run as a result of this. And there's going to probably be a lot of, there's inevitably going to be a lot of suffering among the people of Russia as a result of his actions. Um, And again, there's nothing Christian-like about that, right? Nothing. So he's going to be fine, but the people of his country are not going, they are going to, they are in for long suffering. Again, I'm not sure what's very what's very Christian-like about that, um, but in any event, uh, I think the uh, the sanctions, as, as Biden said, are going to take effect. Some time for them to take effect, but you know, to, the, to the point that you made, you know, we can't become militarily involved outside of weapons to Ukraine. Again, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. Interestingly enough, there are much smaller countries which also uh, border Russia, like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, much, much smaller than Ukraine. Ukraine's the largest country in Europe. Second largest, yeah, second largest country. Yeah. It, well, well, if you count Russia, but Russia is also partly in Asia, too. Right. Um, but, but, but in purely Europe, uh, Ukraine has about 44 million people. Right. Um, you know, those other countries I just named have maybe less than two million uh, each, but they're also part of NATO. And as a result, uh, Putin has been, uh, he, he's been very reluctant, not just reluctant, he has refrained from um, from uh, trying to attack those countries. And he's going to continue that because he understands the heavy, the heavy hand uh, that will come down on him if he were to do that because they're a part of NATO. Um, so he's kind of picked up easy target being. But in any case, uh, you know, we are, to the professor's point, no matter what President Biden did, he is going to be criticized uh, by people on the right because it's their job to criticize him, even if they uh, actually agree with the action that he's done. Um, but, you know, I think that we've done what we, what we can do. I think, obviously, there may have been some things we could have done uh, earlier, but in any case, uh, we are where we are, and I think that we, the, the, the all of the people who I respect, uh, who, who have been looking at this and have uh, expertise in um, uh, international affairs, uh, have said that they largely agree with the actions uh, that uh, President Biden and NATO have taken far. So I, I really don't have any qualms. Right. Um, so let me, I'm going to move the, the conversation to... Um, the th- the concept of NATO. Um, I know I brought it up in the beginning, talking about you know it was designed as an anti-communist um, you know a- objective, right? Eyes towards the east, as uh, Truman st- stated. And so, because of that, um, I, my question is: Is it still relevant? And by by and large, um, I want to play a clip. Um, from Kenya, the Ken- uh, uh, Kenyan delegate who talked about, you know, colonism and its impact in NATO and all this other stuff. So bear with me. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed 
by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Today, across the border of every single African country live our countrymen, with whom we share deep historical, cultural, and linguistic bonds. At independence, had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited, but we would still pursue continental political, economic, and legal integration. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. We chose to follow the rules of the Organization of African Unity and the United Nations Charter, not because our borders satisfied us, but because we wanted something greater forged in peace. We believe that all states formed from empires that have collapsed or retreated have many peoples in them yearning for integration with peoples in neighboring states. This is normal and understandable. After all, who does not want to be joined to their brethren and to make common purpose with them? However, Kenya rejects such a yearning from being pursued by force. We must complete our recovery from the embers of dead empires in a way that does not plunge us back into new forms of domination and oppression. We rejected irredentism and expansionism on any basis, including racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural factors. We, re we reject it again today. So this is a very important statement um, because, number one, the history of Africa, and of course he mentions colonial, colonialism, um, but, you know, the history, you know, of Africa uh, and America, it's imperialism of NATO, NATO putting 12 African bases in different parts, sectors of the country, then increasing it to seven. So, you know, right now you have 19 different operations operating within NATO, um, you know, uh, it, it, with the objective of imperialistic ideals, not necessarily because of com spread of communism, but because it increases our foothold in different sectors of the world. And so you hear this, this African delegate who are saying, listen, Africa was cut up, carved up by the Belgians, carved up by P Portugal, was carved up by the Brits, was carved up by France and created these these false borders that had no implication of history or culture, you know. But here we are. And yes, we would love to erase, you know, borders, Kenya and Congo and all these false names. It wasn't the, what, these names that were placed on us. We would love to get rid of it. But we can't go back. We can't go back. And the idea that we now have to reunify our cultural ancestry by force because this was placed on us by, you know, the powers that be, you know, Africa with colonialism or with, you know, in the case of Russia, the breaking of the Soviet Union is improper. You know, the issue is reunification of force of war, right? Is that like the world is rejecting, not the yearning to be some, to be unified with this mother, quote unquote, motherland, you know, like in a case of Ukraine and Russia, 
but the you know the real issue of the integration by force and objective and pain and you know understanding that Russia took Crimea in, in Ukraine in 1994 but i just thought that was a very very fascinating thought so like what are your thoughts james absolutely and you know <laughs> i'm so glad that you played this clip because first off you know when you have discussions like this more often than not let's be very frank mm. most of the people that are promoted or talked about in news and podcasts or people from European countries, yeah. white Americans. Right. And so to have this incredibly brilliant man weave into this discussion, the history of colonialism and the fate of Africa, it's just absolutely incredible. Right. Look, bottom line, when you talk about notions of white supremacy, Western dominance and colonialism, that's woven into the fabric of NATO. Right. <laughs> the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Right. Right an alliance of like-minded nations, mm-hmm. right? Mostly European and obviously white dominated to protect themselves against supposedly aggression by whites. But really it was a fear of, to be honest with you, if you go back and you really look at a lot of the writings at the time, mm-hmm. there was concern about the possibility of uprisings on the part of Arab nations mm. and African nations and Asian nations. Yeah. And so really there is, I think a very valid way to view NATO as an alliance of Western white nations right, <laughs> to protect themselves, but more importantly, to protect their colonies. Yeah. We can't view NATO just as a collective of nations engaged in self-defense. It was a group of nations coming together to say, you know what? World War II affected a lot of things, but it affected our pocketbook. Yeah. It affected our ability to control our client states. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be great if we had this organization, mm-hmm. NATO, in order to make certain that we look out for each other? Yeah. And looking out for each other is not just self-defense. It's making certain that we maintain the current prevailing Western order. Here's the problem, though. There's a significant tension between NATO and the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you would want to have the United Nations have more of a role in what's taking place right now. And, of course, there's some structural issues in that, of course. And the United Nations being a peacekeeping authority, not an actual. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and that's going to be tough because you obviously have, you know, Russia and China, you know, being permanent members of the Security Council and thus having vetoes. But had there been more of an emphasis on global collective security and not just this North Atlantic Treaty Organization or Alliance, we might not be in the position that we're in today. For the most part, NATO now is effectively to use this phrase, but meaningless. It really can't accomplish anything. Right. It really can't. The NATO expansion was really more so for states who would join to be able to take advantage of logistical arrangements, certain financing support. Funding from the U.S. government. Exactly, exactly. But as far as really doing anything militarily, it really doesn't accomplish anything at all. So I think it's, you know, his words are so brilliant because he points something out which is that NATO is a function of colonialism. It still exists today, and that's why we're finding that it's so remarkably ineffective now in dealing with what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Right. Gabe, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, I agree with that. I think that's a, an interesting uh, perspective. I think if, if the question is, is NATO effective? Did I understand your question correctly? Well, yeah, is is NATO still something that is relevant as far as effectiveness? Because we know it started out with an eye towards 
you know, stopping the spread of communism, but I think it's morphed into something else. Um, the integration of our financial society and, and, and obviously American imperialism throughout the world or Western well, imperialism. You, well, I'll say it like this. If there were no such thing as NATO, right. Then what do you think Russia would have done to the other neighboring countries that border Russia? The much smaller ones. Uh, oh, they, outside of you, they, they would have. Uh, they would have obviously have um, tried to reclaim. You know, and you know, they talk about you know Poland and all that. They would try to reclaim a lot of the territories that were part of the former USSR. And I agree. With, I know right. your point, and I agree with that. I just the yeah. the thought process is, you know, how we view NATO. You know, I just, and again, I don't have an answer to this, but I, the thought process is like. Not to say disband NATO because I know that's what Trump was on, and I don't. I'm not saying I want to disband NATO, but I just thought I think about you know how we look yep. at NATO and its its um, application to worldwide affairs. You know, what is its purpose entirely now, and how we see it? Because it's not to stop the spread of communism; it's to stop you know the insurrections or to keep a world uh, to keep the world in balance with one another. You know, through you know, uh, politics and, you know, making sure that if you gang up on one of us, you attack one of us, all of us are going to jump on. So to kind of, it's kind of to keep everybody in order. Would you agree or disagree? Right. No, I agree with that. I think that it has been a mechanism for ensuring peace, uh, if nothing else, although it may have its issues, and I think it certainly does. Um, I think nonetheless, but for NATO, Russia would have attacked Ukraine and the other much smaller neighboring countries a long time ago. And who knows how far they would have, um, how far into, into Western Europe they would have gone. I, I don't know. Um, so, you know, I, so let me, let me yeah. challenge, let me challenge something here. The thought, pro, you know, I, and I'm going thought process behind Brexit, right? We all know, you know, the campaign underlying campaign behind Brexit was isolationism. And then I know America was really caught up in that as well. Like in Trump um, proctored that as idea of isolationism, getting, you know, us being not interconnected, so interconnected financially, but we don't live in that, that world anymore. Everything in this this world is interconnected financially. I mean, I know we talked about sanctions in the last segment about, you know, uh, sanctions are so important because we're all financially inter integrated with one another. The swift, um, banking. I know we um, talk about. We didn't mention it, but SWIFT is an I, is a banking system that all U.S. Uh, that all countries in the world benefit from ba- on the basis of the uh, on the basis of uh, uh, um, of telecommunications and transactions. And they're talking about you know poss- possibly you know instituting SWIFT. Right? They're talking about in, this is not has nothing to do with NATO. They're talking about countries instituting SWIFT. So the idea is like okay. If we want to do, talk about a world police, there are other forms of actually monitoring and engaging. And if you know they haven't, SWIFT is a nuclear option. Nobody wants to do that. No, even Putin doesn't want to get rid of SWIFT because that would really crush the country, right? It would cause real turmoil. But I'm saying that there are other ways, maybe, just maybe, possibly, philosophically, that we can institute a, you know, a quote-unquote world policing that doesn't include imperialistic ideals of NATO. And that, and, that, and that's all my challenges, um, Gabe. Yeah. And, and I think you, you're probably right. Um, you know, I don't disagree with that. I think that we should rethink um, NATO and, you know, 
the world is not the same place that it was in 1949, right? We, we, we have evolved in many different ways. And as a result, there are different, um, there are other options available to us today that were not necessarily available to us at that time. Right. Um, I think, and I think we, this may be an opportunity for us to explore what those are and perhaps move in a different direction or, um, at least sort of, um, you know, tinker with our current, what, what we have currently in place, which is NATO and maybe make some changes to that, use that as a structure, but nonetheless, right. maybe, maybe, you know, start to implement some other things that, uh, now that we have, you know, evolved and, and, and have a lot of other resources uh, at our disposal, you know, around the world, start to explore what some of those other options might be. Right. But, but I mean, on a base level, I think that NATO has been effective in, if no other reason, I think we, what we see right now, right. um, that, that Putin has attacked everybody, but every country, well, he's attacked Ukraine, um, and has purposely not attacked, uh, the NATO countries. And I think that that has saved a lot of lives. So, I, I, um, I just, And I, I just want to make sure I give people a clear background. SWIFT is, a, is short for the Society of Global International Financial Tele- Telecommunications. It's a global cooperative, a financial institution that's based in Belgium, and it was formed in 1973 with, when 239 banks from 15 different countries came together to establish a way of handle cross-border payments. Today, SWIFT actually connects more than 11,000 financial institutions and across two plus 200 countries around the world and an average of 40 million messages of, 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 of payment um, transaction a day, including ordinance payments, confirmations, FX exchanges, stocks exchanges, all these things. So it's a, we're, we're such an interrelated society that people don't even realize that you can't, we cannot go back to the isolationist theory that, that, you know, we think, it can happen, you know, I mentioned 1973, that probably was prior to 1973, where they realized, like, yeah, like, society's changing, we're all interconnected, that's where we're at. Um, you know, I, you, if you want to respond just for, like, one minute, sure. so we move to conclude. Yeah, quickly, um, you bring up something important, and that is, we're moving to a point where we're so related that maybe the concept of military force is not going to be sufficient to deal with these issues. Right. And even though this is a small thing, I noticed, I believe it was yesterday on the news, Facebook took some pretty serious action against Russia in terms of not allowing its platform to be used to broadcast Russian state news. Wow. Yeah. And that's important. Right. And, and, you know, my son jokingly said to me, if you really want to scare Russia and change their behavior, close down TikTok, Instagram and Facebook. Right. They'll bow down in a second. Right. But I, I think, you know, the challenge going forward is we have to find some new way in terms of either financially or otherwise of hitting nations, because I'm not sure if military force, especially in a circumstance like this is going to be effective. Right. Yeah. So to the point where it's kind of, it's, it's called soft um, in motivation, you know, with a velvet, what is it called? The velvet hammer motivation. Yes. So, um, you know, that, that idea. All right, Gabe. So I know you got to run, so I'm going to let you, Give me your final thoughts here on everything we spoke about. If you, whatever final thoughts you want to, you know, usher in into this conversation. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm not sure how much I contributed, but I'm certainly glad to be on and hear uh, two perspectives that, you know, are somewhat different than mine, but uh, I've certainly gotten my wheels turning um, on some things I hadn't really considered before. Uh, before this discussion. So thank you. Um, 
Secondly, you know, I think that we should all uh, take a moment to uh, reflect on whether or not we ourselves are in silos and whether or not we are giving ourselves an opportunity to uh, consume different perspectives. And uh, I think uh, there was a a quote that uh, Sir Francis Bacon, um, he he wrote this once, and I, I try to remember this in my everyday life. He said, we read not to contradict or confute, nor to accept and take for granted, nor for talk or discourse, but to weigh and consider. And we, uh, what that says to me is that we don't read things and, and, and consume information, uh, and we shouldn't take it as fact just because we heard it from someone, even if it's from someone who we, who we respect and, and trust. We should also challenge that information uh, and try to learn a different perspective and try to be as objective as we can. Uh, because I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that in order to be able to speak to people who disagree with us, we have to first listen to them and understand what, what their understand their perspective so that we can challenge it adequately as opposed to trying to convince them that our perspective is the right one. So, um, I say all that to say, you know, I, I myself try to try, um, to make sure that I am uh, listening to and, and reading, um, you know, different sources, ones that are, that are, that are objective generally, right? I'm not going to read ideology. Uh, that's, just, I think, a waste of time. But objective sources, even if they lean one way or the other, but nonetheless objective sources, so that I feel like I, I'm well informed when I, when I have discussions like this. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much again for having me on. No, bro, as always, man. Like I said, Gabe, our relationship goes back deep, and you know, I love, like I, said, I always love having conversations with you um, because you know, it, it, to people, like you know, you may, you may not realize it, but you're actually one of the, you're one of the few inspirations of the podcast because I always have these great conversations with you, and I'm like, man, that should have been on wax over the years, you know. Um, and so, like, these are the things that I love engaging in high level conversations on subjects that we may not be experts in, but we still have opinions on, you know. Right. So right. Right. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you jumping on. I know you gotta you gotta run, so we'll we'll catch up on on the flip. All right, bro. All right, thank y'all so right. much. Good yep. to meet you. All right, take care, Excuse me, professor. Take care. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. Yep. Bye. So, you know, what are your thoughts? You know, for me. Um, what I'm focused in on is this. Vladimir Putin has become, for whatever reason, and I think I know the reason, which is he's viewed as sort of this avatar of the idea of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And he's inspiring a certain constituency in this nation, the far right, the alt-right, white supremacist. I said earlier, and I just showed this to you a few minutes ago, literally yesterday, there was a not-so-secret white nationalist meeting taking place here in Orlando, a hotel. Nick Fuentes, who is a well-known Holocaust denier and white supremacist and someone who admires Vladimir Putin. At this conference, the people who were there were chanting Putin, 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 praising the invasion of Ukraine and saying that what Putin was doing in Ukraine was proper, was proper, but this is the more dangerous thing that it needs to be done here in the United States. Wow. The immediate threat to us, 
African-Americans and people who are not racist is that Putin's actions will inspire people in this country to take action on a small scale. Right. Hence why you have people like Nick Fuentes carrying torches and marching at the University of Virginia saying Jews will not replace us. Hmm. You know, I think we need to understand that what the Ukrainians are experiencing right now on a grand scale, mm-hmm. well, we could ex- be experiencing that in the United States on a smaller scale with cells of white supremacists who believe that they have the right and the authority to use violence to accomplish their goals and their aims. Yeah. You know, <laughs> let's not forget violence part of white nationalists against African Americans is not something that took place a long time ago in the past. Right. And the one that I think about, a lot of people forget him, Timothy McVeigh, hmm. someone who served in the United States military, yeah. became very radicalized, was a significant admirer of Russia. Yeah. And what did he end up doing? Parked a bomb next to a federal building, killed over a hundred of our fellow citizens, some of them Infants and school children in a nursery. I actually want to do a podcast on the radicalization of, of military men. So, oh, I'd be more than happy to come because I'm going to tell you it is a significant, significant issue, a very big problem. Yeah. And I guess I would say is I'm glad we've had this discussion today because if we think it can't happen here, right, we're wrong. Right. And so, as long as Vladimir Putin is out there as an inspiration to these far right forces, we really need to be concerned for our safety and our welfare. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I will say this because I like to end, you know, on a letter, as a letter to the black culture. So just in this conversation, um, I was taking some notes and thinking about it. And it's like, you know, dear black culture, you know, conversations like this are really my favorite type of podcast um, where we take a deep dive into issues that seemingly under surface don't seem to apply to black culture narrative. But peeling back the layer of why and how is really what this podcast is about. Um, not always to answer the questions, but deliver thoughts of or inquisitions of purpose. And as we said on this program, the very fabric of American history is always layered with racial codex that is hard to define, but often swept under the rug under the guise of American mythmaking, such as the um, riots, uh, the you know riots at the Capitol. That is the problem with the current campaign against CRT and other books and challenging this narrative, right? That's why it's important to challenge the things we see under the lens and scope of race and culture. Now, to a majority of Americans and heck, even the world, this conversation is irrelevant because as we seem to be on the precipice of war and, and the world engagement, um, the time for such evaluation seem pretty much non-consequential. Um, if America was a gang, as I said, you know, uh, then NATO was the turf and Russia's aggression is the starting point of set tripping. So li- in light of this very thought, I could not think of a better, <laughs> of a better, um, of any better outro that embodies the protection of Western ideals in the face of aggression. In other words, don't fuck with the West because we bang. We out. Yes. You're now rocking with the West. We don't fuck with the stress. West side connect gangin', who bangin', and we got failures. So fuck what you claiming. Who wanna scrap with?
put a nigga that pack. Straight mass murdering on 24 track. I put it down like a hog. I got what you need. I'm from the West Coast of Bad Sea with the bomb weed. Hollow points is my venom. I plus rapid than they beat. Flaming hot when I send them in them. Niggas out of bounds. Better duck when I come around. Moving the crowd with a tech. Laying niggas down. You say through my whole crew claiming true. Some niggas got moving. Some niggas wear blue. Penitentiary bound. Smoking weed by the balance. I clown. Sending work out of town on the great hand. Mac 10 is the lick. West side is the click. Can't get enough of this gangster shit. Mac 10 is the lick. West side is the click. Can't get enough of this gangster shit. We got bulletproof vests. 96 SS. Leaving fly bitches in Donna Karen dress with a neck.